The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the King of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. The Gospel of the Lord. Who is your king? As Moses prepared the Israelites to enter the Promised Land, if you remember back to the, the period after the Exodus, when God had brought the people so miraculously out of Egypt through the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, and he carries them through the desert for 40 years, being their protector and their shield. And as they're about to enter the Promised Land, Moses tells them many things, but one of them, he says that you're going to ask for a king. You will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around about me. And he didn't, uh, he didn't condemn the desire that he knew they would have, but he did give them some warnings because he knew they wanted a king. He said, if you ask for a king, he must be an Israelite, not a foreigner, and he shall not multiply horses, wives, and gold for himself because these things require treaties and they require alliances with foreign people. So now we fast forward uh, 200 years through the, the time of the judges. So the people are now settled in the Holy Land. They've crossed the Jordan. They've entered the Holy Land. They've been fighting, conquering, and they've been going through this cycle where they, they turn towards false idols. And so God lets them be overrun. They're conquered. And then they're in distress, they call out to the Lord, they beg him for deliverance, and so he sends a new judge, a strong judge, to, to save them. He saves them, uh, they have peace, and then they turn back towards false idols and worship false gods, and then they begin the cycle over again. They continue this for 200 years, and now we come to the time of the prophet Samuel, the judge Samuel, and he's an elderly man, he's been a good judge, but his son's uh, are not following in his ways. And so the people are worried. They're worried that it's going to happen again, that they're going to turn away from the Lord, that they're going to be conquered again. And so they ask Samuel to ask the Lord for a king. And Samuel is upset with them. But God says to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The period of the judges was supposed to teach the Israelites that they had a king, that God was their king, and that they could trust him to take care of them. 
but they hadn't learned this lesson. And so they asked Samuel to ask God for a king. And God says, okay, I'll let you have a king. Um, and so who does God give them? He gives them, if you remember, Saul. Most people say David, but uh, it was King Saul was the first king of Israel. And the name Saul is, is actually, uh, well, before I get to that, um, when he gives them uh, Saul, before he gives them Saul, Samuel warns the people. Uh, he says, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. He will take your daughters, he will take your sons, he will take your horses, he will take your cattle, he will take your flocks. He's going to take everything from you. And the people respond, No, but we will have a king over us. We want a king like the other nations. God was their king, but they want a king like the other nations. And so he gives them Saul. The name Saul is interesting because as a verb, it means to beg or to implore, to ask, to beseech. And so the people were begging for a king. They're asking for a king. And God gives them Saul. He gives them the response to their begging. But as a noun, Shaul, uh, Saul means hell. <laughs> it means the pit and the grave. It's often translated as hell. And so he gives them what they ask for because God respects our freedom. He respects the freedom and the choice of his people. Even when he knows what we beg for will actually be hell for us. And so he gives them Saul and within Saul's life the kingdom is united but then falls into civil war. Saul sins, he turns away from the ways of the Lord, and so then God chooses David. David is anointed king, they have civil war, eventually David unites the kingdom, and he has peace for a while. And God makes a promise to David, he says that uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if we look at this in human terms, and then we look how the story plays out, we would think, well, God didn't keep his promise for very long because it was within the next generation that the kingdom falls into ruin again. We usually think of King Solomon as Solomon the Wise, but we forget that Solomon turned away from wisdom and he actually uh, ended up dying a very unwise man. If you remember back to those warnings that Moses made in Deuteronomy, he must not multiply horses for himself or cause the people to turn to Egypt. You shall never return that way again, and he shall not multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he greatly multiply for himself silver and gold. But then what did Solomon do? He disobeyed these warnings. He had 1,400 chariots. He had 12,000 horsemen. He, had, uh, he fell in love with the daughter of Pharaoh. He made an alliance with Egypt. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and he worshipped false gods. And the list goes on and on. You think, well, that, would, that doesn't seem very wise at all. <laughs> Wise Solomon didn't end up being that wise because I, it's pretty hard to imagine someone contradicting 
the commands more completely than what Solomon did. 700 wives, 300 concubines, temples to false gods. And so the Lord was displeased and the covenant was broken by people, not by God. God keeps his promise. And then the kingdom was divided, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, within 200 years. Uh, the northern tribes were conquered by Assyria, went into exile a few decades after that. Then Judah was conquered, went into Babylon. And during the Babylonian exile, God was speaking to his people again, reminding them that they needed to repent, reminding them that he was their king, that he was head over them. But there was still hope. There was hope even in exile. And the prophets reminded the people of hope. One example of that is in the prophet Isaiah. It's a quotation we hear every year at Advent. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. When Judah, the tribe of Judah, returned from exile, they rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, but they didn't have a king. And for 400 years, they waited. They waited and longed, knowing this promise that the Lord had given them through Isaiah, until some angels, some angels appeared to some shepherds in Bethlehem and said, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Did the people learn their lesson? Have we learned our lesson? Do we profess Christ our King with our lips and then turn to money, to possessions, to pleasure, entertainment, praises, and so on for our salvation? Do we look to God for our salvation or do we look to the things of this world for our salvation? We live in a, a scientific age, so we could think about this in a scientific way. We want to calculate how how much we look to God for our salvation. Think about, count up the minutes in the day that you, you explicitly give to God. Your ter thoughts turn to God, or you're asking Him for help, uh, dedicating our work, dedicating our relationships, dedicating the different aspects to God. How much of that actually happens? How much do we explicitly give to God, or how much is taken up with, with other things? So, when we're depressed, uh, where do we turn for our consolation? When we're glad, when we're joyful, where do we turn to give thanks? When we are in doubt, where do we turn to find answers? When we're angry, where do we look for justice? When we're tempted, where do we turn for strength? If Christ, if Christ is not the king of every aspect of our life, then he is not our king. He has to be the king of every aspect of our life. So who is your king?